I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and uh, today I'm with Neil Hamilton, the Assembly Member for Mid and West Wales of UKIP. Neil, you're an immensely controversial character, but initially, tell me something about your roots, because they are in Wales, of course. Well, my roots are not a million miles from where we're sitting now, because I was born in a little pit village called Fleur de Lis, uh, which is near Pengam, uh, right on the borders of what was then Glamorganshire and Monmouthshire. I was actually born in Monmouthshire. Uh, my grandfather was a coal miner, both on my father and my mother's father were coal miners, uh, but my mother's father also owned a pub, the Mason's Arms in Blackwood. So my, and uh, after the war there was a housing shortage and uh, I spent my formative years in the pub and um, I think the effects can still be seen to this day. Uh, and then when I was 11, my father was a, uh, an engineer with the National Coal Board and uh, we moved when I was the age of 11 to Ammonford in Carmarthenshire and so I sp- my secondary school years were spent there and then I spent six years at the university in Aberystwyth so I always say I didn't have higher education I had longer education. So. What was it that made you take a right-wing route rather than a left-wing route because coming from where you come from mm. most people would go in the left-wing direction? I suppose uh, I'm a contrarian uh, I have spent most of my life swimming against the tide and e- even in, in the Conservative Party I I very often was swimming against the, the tide in the 60s and 70s, the uh, uh, Macmillanite, Butskillite, Heathite consensus didn't appeal to me, and uh, so I was, uh, I, I was on the wrong side of the establishment even then. Um, I, I, how does one discover where you, uh, one gets one's opinions from? My, my family weren't political, uh, overtly. Um, my father was interested in politics, but he was never involved in any political organisation of any kind. Um, and uh, so we discussed current affairs when I was a schoolboy, but not earnestly. Um, he was much more interested in sport. Uh, and uh, I suppose I got really involved in debating in school. Uh, and I think I just took the opposite view to my then best friends whose father was the chairman of the local co-op and was very steeped in Labour Party ideology. So I, I took the opposite view. Um, uh, I don't know whether it was quite as simple as that. But, uh, I, I remember the very first political event uh, that, that etched itself onto my memory was Suez. I was seven years old. And, 1956. Yeah, and um, we had to keep a daily diary in school, and I remember in my childish imagination drawing British soldiers, um, I suppose, um, bashing up Egyptians or whatever. But, uh, um, Did you think that was So, so I think I was probably a seven-year-old yeah. imperialist. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, it was a very different world in those days. When you went to university, um, I've seen reports about how uh, you were strutting around the campus wearing a Mussolini-style cloak and also I think there have been references to the fact that you went on some exchange mission to some Italian fascist party. What was all that about? Well, I stood for president of the union uh, in Aberystwyth on a joke platform of uh, basically uh, 
um, making the presidency hereditary and an autocracy. And uh, so I seized control of the uh, of the, the lighting systems and sound systems in the Great Hall for the hustings. Uh, and uh, so I came into the Grand March from Aida uh, with a, a, a cohort of bodyguards and so on. I, I did have this cloak, as you, as you rightly say, and a, a sash like the Order of the Garter and a collection of joke orders and decorations and so on. And I made a histrionic speech which uh, said nothing in very grandiloquent language. Um, but that was really to mob the whole thing up and make a joke of it, because in those days... Uh, student union politicians took themselves terribly seriously and they thought they were in the vanguard of the revolution. So we're talking about 1970, 71, something of that kind. Um, and nobody took it seriously at the time and everybody enjoyed it. Um, but then years later, it was one of the charges in the indictment against me in a panorama programme that was made by the BBC, uh, which led to my suing them for defamation and getting the Director General of the BBC fired. So... Uh, uh, th these jokes can often uh, have unintended consequences. Do you think people uh, misunderstood the irony of what you were doing? No, I think it was d deliberately misrepresented in that particular instance. Nobody could possibly have taken it seriously. I mean, another you know, idiotic thing that I did uh, at Aberystwyth was when I was elected the editor of the Student Union newspaper, which was at that time an anarchist rag, and uh, I turned it into... The Feudal Times and Reactionary Herald, which uh, you probably remember was an invention of Peter Simple in the Daily Telegraph, a, uh, a satirical column. Um, and uh, it was the very opposite of everything that had gone before. Uh, so I, I, was, I was really a kind of a contrarian at Aberystwyth as well, standing out against people who took themselves too seriously. And... Uh, um, and against the whole spirit of the time in student politics. I, I, I enjoyed, if you like, sort of outraging people, if, you, if I can put it that way, then. I've become much more consensual since, as you know. Were you seeking to outrage people when you went on this fraternal visit to this Italian fascist party? Well, it was, as, it was something called the Destra della Gioventù, um, which was um, the... the, the uh, the right youth of, uh, 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 movement in, in Italy, um, and you're right, it was the Movimento Sociale Italiano, which, uh, which uh, was, I suppose, uh, the heirs of Mussolini. But they came to Britain. I was then a member of the Monday Club, a ginger group within the Conservative Party, and they thought that we might um, be bedfellows. Um, but, of course, we were very far removed from fascism because uh, we were right-wing economic libertarians, uh, whereas they were authoritarian statists. So we had nothing in common at all, uh, apart from a love of grandiloquent oratory. Uh, and I went and I made a speech in Italian, in the style of Mussolini, um, which created a riot and we had to make a hasty retreat from the conference. Was that a joke, then? That was a joke, yes. I mean, obviously, I didn't... I, 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 the speech itself was just total nonsense. So I was mobbing them up too. Uh, uh, but uh, I hadn't appreciated quite how dangerous it would be to do that. So we had, as I say, to beat a very hasty retreat and get out to the airport as quickly as possible with our uh, uh, intact. So what was the transition between these student japes and entering the legal profession, which doesn't tend to take japery of that kind well, uh, very well. I did politics and economics uh, as my undergraduate degree, and then I did a research degree at Aberystwyth. But when I'd finished that, uh, I, I thought, really at the age of 23, I think I was then, 
uh, I ought to think seriously about what I was going to do to earn a living. And I rather lost interest in economics because at that time it was an aridly mathematical discipline and uh, I wasn't interested in econometrics and so on. So I thought, well, I should all along have read law. Um, but uh, I'd run out of my father's money by that time. And uh, so he wouldn't finance me doing yet another degree. Uh, and so I got a teaching job part-time. And I, st I just got the law books and sat the exams, which you could do in those days, to get called to the bar. Can't do that anymore. You know, I've got to attend full-time courses and go through all sorts of hoops to do it. Uh, and, I, and I did that. And then I went to Cambridge to do a postgraduate law degree because I wanted to do some more academic law. Uh, and um, then I got called to the bar. So I, by the time I got called to the bar, um, I was 29, I think, 29, 30. Um, and then within three years, I was in Parliament. So my, my, my legal career was, uh, was spectacular but brief. Had you always, or for a long time, had an aspiration to become a member of Parliament? Yeah, from a very early age. I was a very odd little boy. And uh, again, it goes back to when I was in school, my best friend wanted to be a Labour MP, so I wanted to be a Conservative MP. Um, there weren't many opportunities in Wales at that time in the 1960s. Uh, so eventually I had to go abroad to England in order to fulfil my ambition. But yes, from the age of, I suppose, 14, 15, that's what I wanted to do, and I set my mind single-mindedly mind, single to achieve that. And then, of course, during the Thatcher period, you became a minister. Yes, I was uh, about government whip uh, at the end of the Thatcher years, um, and uh, I was I was, I was uh, there during the downfall, of course. Uh, so I had a, more than a ringside seat uh, at that. Uh, well, did you um, lament? the fall of Margaret Thatcher? Oh, absolutely. I was a fully paid-up um, worshipper at the shrine. Uh, well, she, you know, she was a dynamic force, uh, like few other politicians of the 20th century. You know, Lloyd George, Churchill, Thatcher, there's only a handful of them. Um, and she was a revolutionary force as well. Uh, even though we were members of the Conservative Party, she was not a Conservative. In, in, in the uh, broadest sense. She was a very radical person. And that's, of course, uh, what I, I had always wanted to see, uh, because I, I wanted to see the kind of changes that she brought about um, much, much earlier. But I was a Thatcherite before she was. Really? In practice, yes, because she didn't really acquire these radical ideas. Well, perhaps actually, that's not the right way to put it. She didn't crystallise them in her mind. Um, until the mid-1970s. Keith Joseph, uh, after the fall of the Heath government in uh, February 1974... I can't up, imagine you were a fan of Ted Heath. Uh, not at all, no, no, no. He, he, he was the opposite of everything that uh, I believed in, not least uh, because he uh, was determined to get us into the common market, as we then called it, uh, which I was always firmly against. I joined the Anti-Common Market League in 1967, which was six years before we went in, so... Uh, I've been in this game quite a long time. Uh, but uh, Margaret made the changes in British politics that I wanted to see, because I, hate, I hated the, uh, um, the socialist consensus as, as I saw it. I've always been an individualist. I think that's been the key to everything that I've done. And you know, sort of the, the, the outrage that has been caused here by some of the things I've said, um, confected or real, like on the dignity and respect policy, is because... Uh, I believe in speaking my mind and there are certain things which may not be uh, comfortable to hear 
but which need to be said. And uh, what is the point of being a member of the Parliament if you're going to hide your light under a bushel? If there are things that you think need to be said in the public interest, you should say them, whatever the consequences personally for you. But of course, looking at the impact of the uh, Thatcher era on the community from which you originally came, there would be those who would say that it was devastated. The valleys were devastated during that period because of all the pit closures, and yet you're someone who supported those closures. How they do were, you justify that? They were inevitable. Um, we, we could never have continued to afford to dig holes in the ground um, and extract coal at many times the price which you could buy it on world markets, and Labour governments uh, were in the same position. Labour closed more pits between 1974 and 1979, and Thatcher did between 1984 and 89. Uh, so you know, the coal industry in the immediate post-war period employed three-quarters of a million miners. That had already reduced to something like one-quarter of a million by uh, 1979. So th this is an, an inevitability, as in the 18th century Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, populations moved to new industries and uh, agriculture, which had been a massive employer um, at one time, uh, of course, became uh, a much, much smaller employer of labour and new industries set up. The, the, the real crime was not to heed this reality earlier and to manage the process of change. And uh, Scargill and Co. were the real culprits for the devastation of mining communities because they led the, their followers uh, up a cul-de-sac from which they couldn't escape. And uh, uh, the consequence was devastating, as you rightly say, and, and nobody wants to see communities suffer. But uh, economic resources are finite, and if you spend them digging holes in the ground, you can't spend them on hospitals, uh, is one way of putting it, I suppose. What uh, more could have been done to cushion the blow, if you like? Well, I don't know that any more really could have been done uh, because the problem is if you, if you don't deal with an issue uh, in good time, it's going to cause greater convulsions when reality supervenes and it has to be dealt with. You can either deal with things at uh, a time of your own choosing uh, and at a speed of your own choosing, or you can wait until everything blows up uncontrollably, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, uh, there were other reasons, because um, volatility of the pound, pound rose uh, or, uh, and, uh, during the 1980s uh, as well, and things like that made things more difficult. Um, the process of change is painful. Um, the big problem for Wales today is that those relatively well-paid jobs in mining and steelworking have been replaced by relatively low-paid jobs. So the Welsh economy has suffered as a result. Uh, more could have been done to make Wales an attractive place to bring in new industries. And I don't mean just by um, you know, the, the Welsh Development Agency type of organisations and, and policies. My view is, and I've expressed this since I've become an Assembly member, is that we must make Wales into a kind of haven for low taxes and uh, proportionate regulation. We don't have the powers to do that entirely, but, but if the UK government was sensible, uh, th they would enable the parts of the country that are inherently less prosperous to 
manage their affairs in a way which would make them more attractive to inward investment. Uh, the Irish Republic has done this very successfully because it's an independent nation. Uh, and although I believe in the United Kingdom, I do believe that, uh, that, that more power should be devolved to Wales to enable it to take those important decisions which could transform the Welsh economy. Going back to the period when you were in Westminster, uh, obviously you got into trouble towards the end of your time there. Um, as a consequence of that, of this, all these allegations that were being made by Mr. Fayed um, about you taking brown envelopes, you became a bit of a pariah, uh, bit. Neil. I was yeah. public enemy number one for a long time. Uh, and, uh, what's, your t what's your take on what was going on at that time then? Well, Fayed was a billionaire uh, with a grudge against the Conservative government uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, he, he, after the takeover of Harrods, the then Secretary of State for Trade and Industry uh, embarked on a Department of Trade and Industry inquiry into where the money had come from to buy Harrods. Um, and that's how I first got involved with FIED because uh, I was at that time the secretary of the Conservative Backbench Trade and Industry Committee and uh, all the officers of that committee were contacted by him. Um, and so I heard about his case and his opponent was Tiny Rowland who was the uh, uh, chairman of Lonro, mm -hmm. a hugely controversial figure in himself and he was spending tens of millions of pounds of uh, shareholders' money uh, fighting fired. He also owned the Observer newspaper, which was viciously attacking Margaret Thatcher. So I saw this as an opportunity, in a sense, to get our own back upon Rowlands. I wasn't interested in who owned a department store in Knightsbridge. It seemed to me that was not something the government should get involved in. Uh, if uh, if I had got the money to buy the store, he should be uh, allowed to in, in enjoy the ownership of it. So uh, that's why I supported him. But then he also wanted to have a British passport, and that was denied him ultimately. And when he, he went through a series of legal actions on that, ending up in the European Court of Human Rights, and when he finally lost in the European Court of Human Rights, that was the last throw of the dice. Then he unleashed this blizzard of allegations from, against everybody, from Michael Howard, who was then Home Secretary, downwards, and including me. Um, Why did you take the brunt of it? Because I fought, <laughs> uh, and... Uh, uh, I went through a parliamentary investigation and... Found uh, against you? Uh, the, the, the parliamentary commissioner found against me, but his crucial findings were not accepted by the Standards Committee. This was after I ceased being an MP, and it was a Labour-dominated committee. Um, so th I then sued Fayed for libel. Because you denied that you I did denied take it. any yes, bribes from him. It was completely untrue. Uh, and, but anyway, I, I actually... I'm the only person who ever amended the Bill of Rights of 1688 because parliamentary privilege precluded anybody from suing me as an MP over things that I was alleged to have done in Parliament. And in order to bring my legal action, I had to amend the Bill of Rights. So I personally managed to persuade a majority in both houses to make this amendment in the Defamation Bill of 1996, which then enabled me to sue Fired in what became, of course, a, a highly uh, publicised but ultimately disastrous legal action. Um, uh, and I discovered that you know the courts are like the Ritz Hotel, open to all, uh, and um, money talks, really, at the end of the day. Um, Fayed was able to employ George Carmen and a whole 
army of lawyers uh, and complicate the case. Uh, and it was in the late 1990s where uh, the Conservatives were hugely discredited, very difficult, I think, to persuade a jury that um, what he said was untrue. But I did subsequently go through a two-year um, investigation by the Inland Revenue, by their special compliance office, people who deal with usually very big fraud cases, and I had to uh, endure them combing through my tax affairs for an entire decade, uh, and I emerged absolutely squeaky clean. Uh, they accepted that uh, there had never been any dodgy payments of any kind, uh, and that by implication the fired allegations were completely untrue. But of course that never... Um, found its way onto the front pages of the newspapers. So then we had to rebuild our lives. So if you hadn't been accused and in the public eye condemned and found guilty by public opinion of taking these bribes, which you deny, yeah. what would have happened to you? I mean, you would have won the election in 97 in Tatton. Oh, yes, I mean, I had the fifth safest seat, Tory seat in the country. How would your career have panned out, do you think, if that hadn't happened? Well, I suppose I might now be negotiating our way out of the EU. Because I'm a contemporary of David Davis, and we've, in fact, he defeated me for the chairmanship of the Federation of Conservative Students in 1972. Um, uh, well, who knows? I, mean, I would still have been a backbencher. Uh, well, I would have been probably a shadow minister in the Blair years, which uh, wouldn't have been a very happy experience um, at the height of his pomp and grandeur, but uh, who knows, what, I would have been in opposition for 13 years, um, which is not a happy experience, as I know from having uh, been there when Labour were in opposition between uh, 1983 and 1997. I, I know that there's a whole generation of talented Labour MPs who never got the chance of office and, uh, and the kind of preferment which uh, they would have wanted. So, so I would have been... Maybe just an obscure backbench MP. That wasn't your fate, because uh, <laughs> when you lost the election in 1997 to Martin Bell, you had to reinvent yourself, didn't you? Yes. And you became, uh, before too long, um, a household name together with Christine. Yeah. So how did you go about creating this celebrity? Well, the, the, the first thing that happened after I lost my seat and after Christine burst upon the nation's consciousness when she confront, confronted Martin Bell and the then famous Battle of Knutsford Heath a, a footnote in history but certainly had a lot of publicity at the time um, John Sweeney's book goes Indeed, John Sweeney uh, we're still in touch today um, and uh, uh, we were invited to do Have I Got News For You uh, and uh, that that was the, um, the, the start of it all so we had to turn what was ostensibly a liability into an asset. And so celebrity, stroke, notoriety, call it what you will, um, was the only asset that we that, that we had. Because I was totally unemployable. Nobody wanted to employ anybody who had the sort of headlines that, that I'd had. Um, and uh, I was 49 years old, so I wasn't going to start again very easily in any normal kind of job. Uh, so we, uh, we, we had to use the, the media in, sh in one shape or form. Well, I, words has been my business all my life in one shape or form, whether uh, as a lawyer, politician, writer, stroke journalist, commentator, performer, 
call it what you will, <coughs> and that's what we did. But we had some lean times. I think our, our joint income in 1998 was £8,000. Um, uh, but... We, we managed to make a go of it on television, and uh, in particular, uh, and Christine uh, kept Wolf from the door with things like, Have I, um, uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Uh, and I suppose we became kind of Butlin's redcoats to the nation. Did you make any ground rules about what you were prepared to do and what you weren't prepared to do? Oh, yes, indeed, we certainly did. We, um, we were offered at the end a third of a million pounds to do a Big Brother, um, and we had no difficulty in turning that down on multiple occasions. Um, Why wouldn't you do that? Oh, I wouldn't uh, put myself in that position. Uh, it wasn't the kind of of image that uh, that either of us wanted to to create. Um, uh, Diverting, as I'm sure the, the programme was. Well, personally, I, I was found it a bit like watching paint dry, but uh, uh, it certainly did have its time as, a, as a, one of the most watched series. But uh, I mean, I have done things which, I, uh, in retrospect, I wouldn't have done. Like what? And uh, well, um, maybe it would be uh, indiscreet to to, uh, to to say, but some of the comedy things which. Uh, which happened to me, I'll put it that way, because uh, these things, if you, if you agree to do something in a theatre or in, um, in television, which are entertainment, you, you're not in control of the agenda. And uh, so you're often asked to do something. And the producer's got an agenda which he doesn't tell you about, so you then find yourself in a situation you can't control. But that didn't happen very often. At the time when you left Parliament, did you find that the Conservative Party cut you off? Oh, that's, that, um, that's the understatement of the millennium. Um, in fact, there was a move to get me expelled from the Conservative Party, uh, but that was stymied when they discovered I'd never actually been a member. You'd never been a member? I'd never been a member. So, well, even though you'd been an MP? Yes, I'd, ne I'd never actually paid a membership subscription. How did you get away with that? <laughs> and, uh, well, when I was elected as MP for Tatton in 1983, my agent, conservative agent, said, uh, well, you, you can't be a member of the party because in an election, uh, the, the cost of running the party office might be ascribed to you and you might exceed your election expenses. So he advised me that I shouldn't actually join my own local constituency party. So in 1997, I was not a member of the conservative party when I was defeated, so I couldn't be expelled from it. So all the time that you were an MP, you were yes. not actually a member, of the, a member of the Conservative Party. And they so, didn't cotton on to that? No, no. Well, there was no centralised database or anything in those days, I imagine. It was long, long before computers. Uh, uh, well, not long before computers, but long before the kind of digital databases we now have. So um, you have, have you ever been a member of the Conservative Party? I suppose I must have been uh, um, uh, in the 70s, but uh, certainly not for 40 years. <laughs> So, they did not want you to be around, obviously, no. afterwards. And, were they quite no, and indeed, of course, it was impossible, given the circumstances of my, my liberation by the electorate in 1997, even to contemplate, contemplate a return to the political fray. You thought that was the end of your political career? Yes, and indeed, uh, for many years after 1997, uh, we were making a, a living out of the world of entertainment and comedy, and... 
<coughs> an overt political connection, which was current, would have been death to our ability to earn a living at, at that stage as well. How did you adjust to the new circumstances? Well, I very much enjoyed doing the television stuff and theatre stuff. You know, um, we did the 30th anniversary tour of the Rocky Horror Show, for example, where I learned to dance down a staircase in 16 stiletto heels wearing a basque and fishnets. You never know when these skills are going to come in handy. Uh, and uh, so life is a great learning curve, isn't it? Um, uh, no, we, we didn't enjoy everything about uh, our new life. And uh, what, what I did miss uh, was the, the ability to do serious things uh, because almost everything that we did was nonsense of some kind, or entertaining and diverting though it might have been. Uh, it lacked a kind of seriousness which, um, w which has always been the centre of my activity even though uh, you know, I, I treat life lightly and, uh, 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 and I have an exaggerated sense of humour which not everybody appreciates. So what took you into UKIP? Well, Nigel Farage invited us out of the blue to lunch. I'd never met him. Um, this, was in 19, this was in 2002. And he'd been in the European Parliament for three years. Uh, he wasn't then anything like as famous as he's now become. But he still was quite well known as a maverick, if you were interested in politics. I don't think he'd burst onto the public imagination particularly uh, at that stage. Um, so we were intrigued. And... Uh, Christine and I went for lunch with him and he wanted us both to be candidates for UKIP in the 2004 European elections. Uh, we had a very jolly lunch and uh, but unfortunately we had to say sadly we were earning a living and being a member of UKIP and candidates was uh, incompatible with that so we'd have to turn him down. But I thought the least that we could do for a four bottle lunch was to join the party which we did. Uh, so I've been a member of UKIP now for 16 years and I did the odd a public meeting with uh, Nigel, which were great fun. We'd have uh, meetings in town halls and so on. And we'd get you know, audiences even then, 400 or 500 people. And uh, so that was fun. Uh, but then uh, about six or seven years after that, I decided that I could get back involved in politics. Um, in the one issue which I had been the central skein of my political life, which was opposition to what had become the European Union and uh, so I decided to stand for the UKIP National Executive Committee and got elected with the largest vote that anybody would ever got and I decided well I'll put myself up for public election as well so I, I, so I thought I'd get on the list for the European Parliament. Um, Nigel assented uh, to my doing that but uh, then I think he decided I might take too much of the limelight away from him and did everything he could behind the scenes to stymie uh, my ambition, um, which led to me then running the entire UKIP election campaign in the European elections in 2014, uh, which of course was very successful. Um, well, we elected more MEPs than any other party uh, and uh, that was the launch pad for the referendum campaign as it, as it happened uh, as a result of of our success in the European elections led on to uh, the general election in 2015 where we got four million votes and I wanted to be a candidate in the, in the general election but again uh, Nigel uh, managed to scupper that too um, uh, uh, but 
beyond that, then I just decided to put my hat in the ring for the Welsh Assembly, because you could change its rules to enable uh, people who uh, had uh, no resident connection in, in Wales at the time uh, to to be candidates, because the law of the land says if you live in Outer Mongolia, you can be a candidate for the well for the Welsh Assembly. Um, the last thing they expected was for me to um, put my hat in the ring, but uh, which I did, and of course I got selected and, and got elected. Because there was a big kerfuffle behind the scenes, because I think there were attempts to stop you being a candidate. Oh, absolutely! Then, yeah. the I remember this going on for quite the a most long time. De deplorable black propaganda campaign uh, against me, um, uh, and in, in which various criminal offences had been committed by the misuse of the party's databases, membership databases, and so on. Um, but I powered on through as as usual, and um, so I've got here. And uh, so the wheel has come full circle. Uh, I mean, I've never actually lived more than an hour from the Welsh border in, in the whole of my life. But I've, of course, I've spent most of the last forty odd years in England, um, perforce, because of the lack of opportunities to be a Conservative MP in Wales. Um, and then once we got involved in the world. Of comedy and entertainment, of course, we had to be nearer London, because uh, that's where most of the work was generated, even if it didn't actually take place there. So we found a, a house uh, close to a motorway junction on the M4, uh, and only an hour from Cardiff. So uh, it, uh, it suited us to, down to the ground, as a result of which I find myself here in the Welsh Assembly today. I would imagine that at one time, when you were in Westminster, you were no fan of proportional representation. Is that right? Well, that was then, and this is now. <laughs> <laughs> because it's thanks to proportional representation that you're here. Exactly. Because you wouldn't be here without it. Absolutely right. We, will, we would never win a, a, a seat of first-past-the-post in 40 con constituencies. Uh, and as you rightly say, we got about 12% of the vote in the um, Assembly elections two years ago. So we, got, we won seven seats out of 60. So it was an extremely good result. But it didn't last for long. Uh, I mean, initially, no. of course, there was this huge bust-up, wasn't there, between you and Nathan Gill, uh, a man for whom you don't have an enormous amount of respect. Of course, people who uh, support him would see you as some kind of Johnny-come-lately in UKIP, uh, <laughs> although, as you said, yeah. you have been a member for many years. But yeah. what was it about Nathan Gill that got your goat? Yeah, he didn't get my goat, I got his goat. Um, Nigel Farage made him the leader of UKIP in Wales, purely a title, with no executive authority. When he became the MEP for Wales in 2014, Nigel gave him that title basically so that the media had a handle that they could put to his name. And he assumed that that gave him a reversion on the leadership of the UKIP group here. But as he had done everything he possibly could to stop me getting into the Assembly in the first place, and not just me, several others as well, who ended up getting elected ultimately, because um, I, I, it was thanks to me that we had a properly democratic vote to choose our UKIP candidates. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we formed our, our regional lists of candidates. In two regions we managed to elect the top two, in others uh, just the top one. But uh, uh, that was where we first fell out. Then when the seven of us were elected, there were four who were against him because he had tried to stop them getting selected, uh, Gareth Bennett in particular and Michelle Brown. Any thought that he was going to get their votes for being 
group leader were very uh, far from the reality of the situation. Uh, and to be honest, uh, you know, he simply didn't have the debating skills and personality to carry off the role. Uh, he never accepted that. So it's been a, a running sore with him ever since. Uh, and eventually, and it didn't take very long, he decided to resign from the group. He was never going to be a collegiate member, although I tried my best to uh, make peace with him, but uh, I'm afraid he was an irreconcilable. And thereafter, all he wanted to do on the few occasions when he was here was to make trouble for me. One of the points that uh, always used to be made about the Assembly from its outset was that it had become very much yeah. a consensual kind of yes. uh, body where uh, everybody, to a large extent, agreed with everything else. But you obviously decided that that was not going to carry on. And actually, from the very first meeting that you attended, when you <coughs> made some uh, remarks that gained notoriety about Leanne Wood and yes. Kirsty Williams being part of Carwin Jones's harem, yes. what was it that prompted you to use that particular phrase? Because many people found it very offensive. Well, I, I, that has to be their problem, not mine. I, I personally didn't th uh, think it's offensive at all. It's just um, a colourful phrase. Uh, you know, uh, I, I was a columnist on the Sunday Express uh, for many years, uh, and uh, I was a kind of Richard Little John figure for the Express. So uh, I wrote in the same style as, as he does, and oratorically, I, I think in that style too. I wanted to create a splash and to to make a point which the public would see. Uh, you, there's no point in making speeches in this place if nobody knows about them. And when we first arrived here, Plaid Cymru approached me and asked me if I would join them uh, to stop uh, Carwin Jones being reappointed as First Minister and therefore, in effect, to block the Labour government being formed. Because Labour, although they uh, only got a third of the vote, uh, got just under half the seats. And uh, so we did successfully manage to block Carwin's appointment. Tories, Plaid and Kit joined together. Um, but then, of course, Plaid bottled out at the last minute. Leanne Wood could have been First Minister, God help us. But Plaid decided to do some kind of a backstairs deal with Labour instead. Um, I wanted to break the consensus, as you rightly say. Uh, and 20 years of government by one party isn't good for any country. Uh, it, was, it was an important vote, and uh, the second time that uh, Carwin was put up, uh, Plaid decided not to oppose him. And so, as a result of Kirsty Williams having been elected in a constituency in which only 8% of the population voted Labour, 92% voted, voted against, uh, you know, she then suddenly becomes a member of the Labour government. And uh, Leanne facilitated Carwin's return to office. So I think it's fair enough to describe them uh, as participants in his harem. Political harem, actually, was what I said. Uh, so um, if the cap fits, wear it. If Kirsty Williams, of course, had voted the other way on that um, occasion when it was Carwin Jones versus Leanne Wood, then Leanne Wood would have won. If that had happened... How do you think things would have panned out at the Assembly? Well, it wouldn't have been a very stable coalition, that's for sure. But uh, nevertheless, I thought it important to break the historical thread that uh, 
uh, had uh, connected Labour to control of the Assembly for the last 20 years. We would have had to compromise on all sorts of things, uh, but I would have been prepared to do that uh, for the greater good of the Assembly and of the, the country. I guess that it would all have collapsed in confusion after a relatively short time because there wasn't sufficient community of uh, interest and agreement on policies between the three disparate sections of this coalition, the Tories, Plaid and, uh, and UKIP, to, to make it stable. But nevertheless, um, it, it would have blocked Labour and we would have been able to remove the power of patronage from them. And that's another part of what I think of as the corruption of politics in, in Wales. I don't mean it in a kind of mafia sense of corruption, but, but you look at the public appointments which have been made, all the important ones have gone to people who are either members of the Labour Party or activists or adherents to what they believe in. Not all, but a very substantial proportion of, the, of, the, of those jobs. And so... I've always been very anti-establishment, wherever I've been, uh, and uh, I was an anti-establishment person in the Conservative Party, as I explained earlier on. I was against the then Conservative establishment. And Thatcher was actually very <laughs> anti-establishment. She always spoke of her cabinet as though, though they were the opposition. Uh, and, uh, you know, I shared that mindset. Uh, I think that we have had an invigorating impact upon the Assembly, the small group of us, by saying things which otherwise would be unsayable. What annoys me about the Conservative Party here is how meek and mild and supine they are most of the time. Uh, and they, they won't join in the kind of rebellions that we want to see. They, they agree with too much of what the consensus wants. And yet UKIP has become rather a dysfunctional party, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, UKIP is dysfunctional, there's no doubt about that, because we're a grassroots movement that's come from nowhere in a very short time. We don't have a hinterland of, or, uh, of political organisational structure uh, which um, uh, can contain us, if you like. Um, and, and all sorts of random people get elected to, to office in those circumstances. And there's no internal sense of discipline in, uh, in which all long-established parties are bound to have. Um, and, uh, but that's a sign of, of, of youth, uh, immaturity. Uh, and uh, if UKIP manages to stay the course, of course, it will develop these characteristics. Um, and because of proportional representation in Wales, we do have that opportunity because just... Uh, uh, a month or six weeks ago, we were still at 8% in the polls and the regional lists in, in Wales, and which would be enough to get one elected in each region. So it's still possible for us to recover uh, from the sort of carry-on UKIP episodes that we've seen in the last couple of years. And that's what I hope we'll be able to do. But we've got to instill some discipline. And so the events of recent days here don't help to achieve that objective. And yet, when... Nathan Gill resigned eventually, and of course mm. there was a big row about him, mm. two jobbing. Yeah. <coughs> he eventually resigned, and the person who replaced him, uh, I think really on your say-so, mm. wasn't allowed to join the UKIP group. I mean, wasn't that No, a bit it wasn't ridiculous? on my say-so. It was a unanimous decision of the group that uh, we could not have, as a member of the group, somebody who employed members of other parties and were activists in other parties. Some of our staff are active Conservatives, others in independent groups, and they've been putting up against UKIP candidates. 
we can't have those people who, with access to our intranet and email systems and listening in on conversations. We can't trust them. And so uh, I said to her that she should not re-employ Nathan Gill's staff because many of them had been guilty of uh, uttering uh, vile and abusive things about me in particular, but also other members of the group, and had been manically tweeting abusive things about us and so on. It's impossible to think that we could work with these people happily and that we could trust them. But uh, she insisted that she was going to re-employ his staff, so I'm afraid she excluded herself. You've been booted out as the leader of uh, the UKIP group because the majority of them decided that they didn't want you anymore. <coughs> what was it that led to that? Well, I think this is um, an unfolding story. Uh, I don't think that there's any credible reason for what happened because we had a, a group meeting at which various complaints, many of which I'd heard before, were uh, repeated and... Is that complaints about you? Yeah, about the way I was running the group and so on. Uh, well, they were accusing you of being a tyrant or something, were they? Well, not quite that, but, but uh, I hadn't consulted them about staff appointments, and not that they had any gripes about the staff that I had appointed. But uh, their complaints were mostly about Gareth Bennett, and in particular he made a video which I knew nothing about, which lampooned Joyce Watson and AM and uh, which they objected to, uh, and, and various other things that are not really of any great consequence, but which um, they objected to, but over which I had no control. A report that he'd written for the UKIP National Executive, which I hadn't seen and knew nothing about. So we had this rather inconclusive meeting, and we were supposed to reconvene on the following Monday, but then two or three hours later I got a text from Caroline to say that the three of them had decided they were going to be the group from now on. They had nothing against me, I wasn't responsible for the split, and I hadn't, uh, as far as they were concerned, done anything reprehensible, so I'm still at a loss to, to know what it's all about. But I guess you think that you may have the last laugh anyway, because now I think it's been arranged that there will be a ballot of all the UKIP members in Wales. Well, I think this is the only way in which we can sort out the, the problem of this kind of infighting. There, there are, of course, always competing ambitions in politics as well, uh, and people who think that they should have this job or that job. Um, actually, the, at the end of the day, we can't have the effective leadership and public face of UKIP uh, decided by one person's vote. You know, this text that I had from Caroline Jones said David Rowlands wanted to be leader, uh, that she wanted to be leader, so Michelle Brown thought it would be better if we had a woman for a change, so Michelle Brown decided who was the leader of UKIP in Wales. Well, clearly that's totally unacceptable as a system of election. So the best way is to let the UKIP members vote on this. Of which there are about a thousand? If that, I would think, yes. I don't know what the current uh, uh, number is. How um, competent are you of winning this election? Well, I have no idea. We'll, we'll see. I'm prepared to, to abide by the, the members' decision at the end of the day. There are those who say, Neil, that the reason why you want to be the leader and have been in the past is because you're a man who likes money and you just want the money. Because you get more money according to the numbers. Yes, of but the, group, uh, you know, it's, uh, the money is irrelevant to, to, to this. Uh, it, after tax, it's not a prince's ransom. Uh, and actually, the responsibility that comes with being the party leader uh, and the extra work that it involves uh, is 
wholly disproportionate to the pay attached to, to the job. Uh, I, I want to do this job because I have 40 years of experience uh, and you know, I think everybody knows what I can do in, in the chamber. I don't have to blow my own trumpet, let people form their own view. Uh, and then I hope that in the three years which remain, whoever wins, whoever loses, will be able to work together for the common good. And that's my aim, if I win, is to repair the, the, the broken fences and, and go forward. After the referendum and its result, what is the point of UKIP? Well, I think we proved that we have an enduring role in Welsh politics if we get re-elected because we say the things that nobody else will say and we have uh, you know, uh, uh, views which are not mirrored in the other parties. And we're the only party that believes in, in real immigration control. You know, the Conservatives uh, for years said they want to reduce immigration to net migration to less than 100,000 a year. It's still at a quarter of a million a year to 300,000 or more. Uh, you can't even believe the figures because the system is so porous. Um, and we're the only party that would scrap a large part of the foreign aid budget and use that for the health service and, and other good things at home. We're the only party that opposes green taxes and forests of windmills on the hills of Wales, etc., because we're sceptical about uh, the benefits to the planet of... Uh, of closing down the Welsh economy uh, when China and India uh, are wiping that out in a matter of minutes. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a whole range of policies where we are giving people a choice that none of the other parties will give them. And post-Brexit, I think this will become more apparent. In Wales, we're able to, to, to do this because we do operate in a domestic political context here. We haven't got MPs at Westminster, we haven't got MPs in Scotland. Uh, but we do have AMs in Wales, and so UKIP in Wales could be and should be and will be uh, UKIP's shop window. If we can repair the glass, then it might uh, be the precursor to a UKIP revival generally. I think the whole Brexit negotiating process has rather paralysed uh, political debate in, in the domestic context. The return of two-party politics with Jeremy Corbyn being an obvious radical alternative to the Tories, led by whoever, has made it difficult for the smaller parties in a way which um, didn't exist in when we had a kind of Blairite consensus with Blair and Brown and Cameron. Those days have gone, but they might return, in which case then parties like UKIP will have um, more of a, of a chance of revival. But I, I think UKIP can survive so long as we stop shooting ourselves in the foot. How do you think Theresa May is doing with Brexit? Oh, absolutely useless, of course. Uh, the problem is that she doesn't believe in what she's doing. Um, and you know, she's one of these women, or, uh, and it's not only women who suffer the, this characteristic, but uh, whose indecision is final. You know, she, she just can't take a decision. Um, I never thought I'd say this about anybody, but she's even worse than John Major as Prime Minister. Uh, and sh she, she, she's presiding over a shambles in her own party, uh, uh, and because she doesn't have any fixed ideas of her own, as so it appears to me, she's being pushed from pillar to post. All she's trying to do is, is to mediate the whole time between the competing factions in her own party. The result is that they've given way at every single stage of the negotiations. You know, Barnier simply has to say no, and um, then they come back with 
you know, more and more inducements until they give him exactly what he wants, and then they move on to the next. So no, it's been a it's been a complete betrayal of the referendum results, I think. But do you think that the UK had a good negotiating position? Yes, I think we had an absolutely brilliant negotiating position. First of all, seventeen and a half million people voted to leave in a referendum, the largest democratic vote in British history. We have a massive trade deficit with the EU. We are massive contributors to the EU budget. And we have everything to gain from uh, trading with the rest of the world on our own terms. Uh, The European Union is in long-term political and economic decline, certainly relative decline economically. And we see all over Europe, most recently in the Italian elections, the people are revolting against this construct which is not based in, in the kind of human uh, substructure of politics at all. It's an attempt to create a political organisation without people. It's deliberately designed to be undemocratic because the founding fathers of the EU saw democracy as a problem. It's a 1940s answer to a 1930s problem. They saw demagogues whipping up the emotional masses, uh, and the result was Hitler, Mussolini, World War II, and all the rest of it. This is not the world of the 1930s, this is the world of the 2010s, and nations cannot be suppressed. Uh, They will burst their bonds, and we're seeing this in Catalonia, we're seeing it in the Basque country, we're seeing it all over Europe. The, The Eastern European countries, having wrenched themselves away from the yoke of the Soviet Union, now find themselves in another organisation that's trying to remove their nationhood and they, they are not going to give in to it. This is a political structure that, uh, that cannot ultimately stand. And, uh, and The euro, of course, is a catastrophe uh, and there's no solution to that but uh, its break-up. And as soon as they stop printing money in the European Central Bank, that will, I think, reveal itself again in glorious technicolour. But in terms of international trade deals, how can the UK on its own do better in negotiations with foreign countries than the EU as a bloc? Because we can take decisions and the EU can't, because there are 27 members of the EU and in 50 years the only trade deals they've managed to agree are South Korea and um, now Canada. so it's not a very impressive record. Well, I thought, I thought there were 60 odd deals. Oh, but they're, they're including sort of French ex-French colonies and so on that are of little significance. They don't have a trade deal with India, with China, with the United States, any of the big players and growing countries like Vietnam. All the growth economies of the world uh, are um, out of any kind of trade deal with the EU because the EU is a customs union. It's a political organisation. They're much more interested in, in keeping that political structure together than the economic welfare of the people within it. And, you know, Barnier's negotiating tactic is, is entirely motivated by this. It's uh, n- not to do a deal which is obviously advantageous to the EU, a free trade deal with Britain, uh, where they have a massive uh, trade surplus. It, 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 his uh, uh, negotiating strategy is to say no to everything unless we effectively stay inside the EU by remaining in the customs union or the single market, because he knows that if Brexit is seen to be a success... Others will want to follow suit. But you know, we've got the whole of the Commonwealth, uh, which it wouldn't be difficult to, to do deals with. Um, and the Commonwealth is several billion people, including 
uh, powerhouse countries like India as well as Australia and New Zealand. Canada. You think there should be free movement for Indians to come to? No, of course not. Uh, well, they're not going to have a deal with us then, are they? Well, I, I, that would be massively to their disadvantage if they didn't. But no, because we we have to recognise that uh, migration is a massive issue, and we're adding a quarter of a million, third of a million people to our population in this country every single year. This is imposing massive strains on public services, as well as upon uh, you know, housing development and, and so on. We're, we're a small country in land area. We are the most densely populated c country in Europe. Certainly uh, England is. And there, there, there has to be a limit. It's the speed and scale of migration, which is the problem. When Enoch Powell made his so-called Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, net migration was 50,000 a year. Now it's five or six times that. So we can't deny the pressures that are there. What was the referendum vote about? Mostly control of our borders. Uh, and immigration is, is the issue which nobody could speak honestly about for most of the last 50 years. And yet, you know, within months of Enoch Powell's speech in 1968, the then Labour government had tightened immigration controls. And in 1971, when Heath was elected, the 1971 Immigration Act actually introduced a repatriation scheme with public funding. You know, this is the essential hypocrisy of, uh, of politics, of course, that, that the unsayable and unspeakable soon become the conventional wisdom. And finally, what's your prediction about the way the negotiations with the EU will culminate? They will stumble along and we'll effectively remain in, inside the EU, I think. So the battle is far from won as yet. And so UKIP will arrive on the back of that betrayal. So you think we'll be in the single market and the customs union? I think there'll be some kind of a fudge which effectively has this transitional period, the implementation period, as Theresa May calls it, rather meaningless term, uh, has already been extended uh, well into the 2020s. Uh, who's to say it isn't going to be expanded indefinitely. And uh, the aim of the Remainers, as we see day in and day out, is to keep us in. Uh, and the longer this long, drawn-out process continues, the easier they think that will be. Actually, I think what they will do is recreate a mood of national frustration and impatience. <coughs> and uh, so we will have to carry out our historic uh, mission, which is to complete the process. Thanks very much, Neil Hamilton. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.